This is the Future Forward Argos podcast, where we're exploring tomorrow, today, on the radio. Catch us live Wednesdays at 6 p.m. on Student Who's Radio. I'm Karis Husted. And I'm Xi Yu Chen. And we are your hosts for this week's episode of Future Forward Argos. As a reminder, on Future Forward Aarhus, we bring you stories, interviews about the change makers and the futurists right here in central Juland. You explore the future with us every other Wednesday. We have explored the future of fashion and urban spaces. This week, we are diving into the future of food, the changing nature of what we eat, what we drink, and how we produce and dispose of food. The reason we're doing this episode, aside from the fact that we love to eat, is that the world is facing a food crisis. More than 9 billion people will need access to fresh food by 2050, and two-thirds of them will live in cities. There needs to be solutions for sustainable food production and farming in order to feed the future masses. Ohus wants to be a part of this future food innovation trend. In 2009, the city opened the 460,000-square-foot agro-food park, an innovation cluster devoted to food. It houses 80 organizations and 1,000 employees working on food business and research. Over the next 30 years, the park will add more than 3 million square feet, with the goal of becoming the Silicon Valley for agriculture. Chances are, if a food innovation breakthrough happens, it could come from Ohus. And today, we'll bring you the stories of three innovators working on the ground to make this future happen. This includes a startup hoping to make bugs into the latest food trend, a research team using artificial intelligence to taste beer, and a new method of food waste recycling that could make composting more sustainable. Our first report is centered around what can be thought of as the potential diet of the future, insects. We might think of them as gross because, frankly, mealworms are not exactly gourmet, but actually they may incur more benefits than we know. Our colleague Laura Galante reports on this subject. What if, in the following decades, our main source of food for both humans and livestock was mainly insect-based? Can you imagine living in a reality in which the most sustainable food production method involved the harvesting of insects such as mealworms? And what's more, becoming one of our main sources of nutrition? The project Invaluable aims to accomplish exactly that, the development of a sustainable insect value chain. Its vision? creating an industry for sustainable protein production based on mealworms. I had a talk with invaluable scientific project manager and biologist Lars Heckmann, who works at the Danish Technological Institute here in Aarhus, where mealworm research and production takes place. He talked to me about the initiative as well as why insects can prove to be so beneficial. Insects provide a part solution to the dilemma in which we are living right now, which is that we have a climate uh, crisis and at the same time, we also have a food crisis. You can discuss whether it's due to distribution of food, but nevertheless, we need to produce food more sustainably in the future. And as a biologist and having worked you know, with insects and other invertebrates, other critters for a decade or so, when I uh, came to, the, to DTI, short of Danish Technological Institute, I, uh, I saw that there had already been some, some, uh, some project or one project running within this context, insects as, as feed and food. And uh, together with other colleagues uh, in the department, we felt that there was, that was really motivating to carry that on. Booting this project and obtaining a grant was not a piece of cake. After all, 
How do you convince investors that insects are the next way to go in terms of food source? So we submitted the, the project initially in, in 2015. At that time we had already a few projects running. Uh, and in the first run we, we didn't get funded. And I think the, the foundation, it was still a bit too crazy for them to consider insects as food. So uh, we submitted another time in a, in a revised version. Uh, so we, we, had it, uh, we had a granted project by uh, January of, uh, 2017. Eventually, the budget that was granted for Invaluable was a 28 million krona, or about 3.3 million US dollars. While there are millions of insect species in the world, Invaluable chooses to focus specifically on mealworms due to their high potential to become industrially produced in bulk. Right now, there is very little knowledge in all type of insects in most applications, so mealworms are a good place to start. In addition, they are relatively more attractive in terms of edible potential, so to speak. We started with mealworms because compared to some of the other insects, at least in the food sector, because when you say flies, many people do not consider that as food. Uh, maggots, decay, yeah, you, you name it. So we, we looked at, okay, amongst those insects that, that, are, um, that have a, a near future in food, which of those are most easy to industrialize or to produce in bulk? Because our focus is uh, to, to, um, to work with, with industry partners that want to produce at, at, at high level. You can produce, of course, crickets and grasshoppers, which are also delicious, but they just require a lot more space and they have different uh, living uh, specifications than, for instance, mealworms. Mealworms you can, you can produce almost in layers of uh, 5 to 10 centimeters, and then you can, uh, you can stack this on top of each other. And right now we're producing these layers to 3-4 meters in height, but in the future, only maybe a decade uh, down the road, we might be producing this in 10 or 20 or, or more meters in height. The production of mealworms is exactly the same for both feed and food. The room in which this happens is incredibly warm, and there are steel trays upon steel trays of mealworms at different growth stages around the room, from larvae to grown beetles. Lars gives me a run-through of the process as we go around. You start with eggs from adult beetles or flies. Uh, those eggs, uh, normally you get the most consistent production if you can collect those eggs, which is not easy, but that's what we're trying to do to reduce variation so that we know we, we apply a certain amount of eggs in, in uh, production trays where eggs then hatch to larvae and those larvae then live, depending on the species, two to eight weeks in these production trays where they have the, the feed they need, they have the right temperature. At the end of that uh, phase they are then separated uh, mechanically um, where their feed or residual feed and insect frass or their feces is separated from the larvae. Those larvae are then either the bulk of them frozen and uh, made into a flower that can be used in feed or food. And, and a low percentage is, is uh, led to pupate, so becoming adults that can then uh, have the, the, the life cycle uh, carry on, so they will be the new mother culture that will lay the eggs and, and then it carries on. In terms of impact on the environment, Lars tells me that producing insects is more sustainable than the methods with which we currently produce meat. Whereas 10 kilos of feed would produce 1 kilo of meat, it would on the other hand yield 4.5 kilos of mealworms. Insects can be produced at a fraction of the resources needed for the same amount of biomass as other animals, if not more. 
CO2 emissions are roughly 100 times lower than for cattle. Water requirements are also much lower in the area of 100 to 1,000 fold less than for producing beef products. What could this all mean for 2050? Together with other important initiatives like uh, reducing food waste, eating less meat, insects can be part of, of, a, of, a, of the solution. The, 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 the challenge right now is, is, however, that people are not very familiar with eating insects. So it's, it's far more uh, appealing to, to, to eat that meat that you're used to but it's not that different than really shrimp or, or, or something like that. We just need to, to get uh, acquainted with it. And it takes time. So, and I think there's a considerable amount of time until 2050. We're talking three generations or three d- decades here. So, uh, so there should be a fair good chance that by, by then, uh, my children who are six and nine, for them it'll be second nature to eat insects. Maybe uh, not uh, every day, but if just we're eating insects uh, once a week or twice a week, we can do a huge difference. So here we see how there do exist food production solutions that can tackle the issue of energy and source waste if we only look more closely for them. We might not find insects very appetizing at the moment, but it could only be a matter of time. Check out invaluable.dk if you want to know more about this project. We've got Laura here in the studio to talk a little bit more about um, uh, what happened. So... We've definitely seen from your report how insects have the potential to be more sustainable. How nutritious are they? Well, okay, hello everybody. What I actually found uh, later on is that the difference in nutrition between insects and meat, there are different opinions about it, but actually I had looked at a report that was uh, made by the University of Oxford. And basically what this report said is that in terms of nutritional value, which is evaluated on a number of parameters, the the difference between meat and other types of insects, including mealworms, was actually not that varied between the two. However, this report also showed that there was more of a difference in vitamins and minerals, which were taken into account, which basically meant that actually uh, eating insects can be quite healthy. And it could actually be healthier than eating meat, which was something really surprising. Right. Bugs, part of a uh, naturally balanced uh, diet, right? Okay. So have you tried a mealworm? Did you you test taste any of these? Yes. Actually, when I was younger, we went to this uh, salad making uh, organization. It was in a sort of garden. And so they made you try uh, making your own salad with uh, flowers and different worms and uh, other insects. So I tried a mealworm. You know, like after you get past the initial sort of... uh, yeah, this taste that you might get for an insect, it actually tasted quite similar to a pine nut. And uh, if you know what pine nuts taste like, it's kind of, it's a very, very normal taste. So you just have to get past that initial gross feeling that you get from it. And I think that once you actually get accustomed to it, it might quite be, it quite, yeah, it might be quite, uh, yeah, an interesting uh, addition to your diet. Okay, so you would cook with mealworms if they were in your kitchen? Maybe. Yeah, (laughs) I'll try. Uh, It will be quite, it'll be something that I'd like to try in the future. Yeah, definitely. Food production is a lot more than what we consume. It's about the process of growing and disposing of food. Carrie talked to a group of students who are running a pilot project on Aarhus O that could make this process far more sustainable. Let's take a listen. Clara Silvstein always wanted to recycle everything but she couldn't figure out a way to recycle her food waste. She lived in Ohusi in an apartment, so composting wasn't really an option. 
and Aarhus doesn't have a food waste recycling program like you would have for glass bottles or aluminum cans. Now she's behind a project that can make recycling food waste and urban composting a reality in Aarhus. We want to make it possible for uh, people who do not have access to a garden to compost. It's called Compostin. It's a neighborhood-based food waste recycling network that uses a Japanese technology called Bokashi to make composting more efficient. The product is a nutrient-rich natural fertilizer called hummus and a liquid product for houseplants called Bokashi tea. They're currently running a pilot project with 50 participants on Aarhus Ö with the hopes of convincing the municipality to expand the solution citywide. I spent a recent Friday morning with the Compostin team to find out a bit more about how this food waste innovation works. It's 10 a.m. on a sunny Friday. Solfstein and her team pick up food waste from garbage bins outside Aarhus Ö apartment buildings. They pick up every two days, usually between 20 and 50 kilos of decaying matter. They call themselves posh garbage men. They bring the waste to a rented storage container in a nearby urban garden called Ohaun. They change into navy quilted thermal jackets and pants and put on latex gloves and a mask. Unsurprisingly, digging through food waste can get a little messy, said intern Dora Sharikova. While we are putting the garbage in the machine, sometimes it's just start to like, um, how to say, like, not explode, but <laughs> we get the splash every now and then. And, um, or sometimes I have to, to hold it uh, in my arms and yeah, then I just have some spillage on myself. It's okay. It's, um, yeah, it's a part of a game. Next, the team sorts through the banana peels, coffee grounds, bread slices, and other food waste to make sure everything is compostable. Then, they use a grinding machine to turn the waste into a fine pulp. Finally, the waste is added to a garbage can, and their secret ingredient, bokashi powder, is sprinkled on top. Okay, so what exactly is Bokashi? Solstein explains. You add some microbes to the food waste in an anaerobic environment, so like in an airtight bucket, um, where the food waste will ferment, and then after two weeks you can put it in the ground and it's compost. But then what the Bokashi mix of microbes does is that it uh, works with something that's called what's called like the rule of domination. So it goes in and dominates what all the other microbes does. So it's like, you know, the cool kid in the block. As soon as there's like 50 people who wear tight jeans, then the 20 other people who are wearing big jeans are suddenly like, okay, apparently it's cool to wear tight jeans, you know. So they will start doing that. So all the microbes will start fermenting. And forget about what, what they were doing, because now it's cool to ferment. And that's why we're pretty sure that there will be no diseases. While rooted in traditional Eastern farming practices, it isn't commonly used in the Western world. But it has significant benefits over traditional composting, Solfstein explained while preparing the food waste. Yeah, so another um, cool thing about the Bokashi is that it can uh, take everything. So normally uh, you don't put... Um, like cooked food or um, meat or dairy products um, but this method can take everything you can even put small bones small pieces of paper cheese meat everything uh, goes yeah so that also makes it a little bit easier to sort that uh, it's not a very picky it's not some not very picky microbes <laughs> yeah it's also much faster so after two weeks like we when a box is full 
we close it and we take the new box and then after two weeks uh, of it being closed it's fermented ready and then you can put it in the soil put a layer of soil on top of it and then after two weeks it's actually ready to be planted in but in order for it to be like a ready product it should be uh, around three months in total which is also a very fast composting time because normally that can take like six to twelve months this creates a natural humus an important layer of nutrients in the soil that has been depleted due to our accelerating food cycle they're currently in talks with local farmers to sell the humus another byproduct is a liquid called bokashi tea which can be used to enrich the soil of houseplants. It's important to point out that the Bokashi method emits very little methane, a greenhouse gas. This is especially important because Aarhus has the goal of becoming carbon neutral by 2030. So the compost and recycling method could be a solution, but it's not that simple. In Denmark, there are regulations on how food waste is transported and how compost is treated in order to prevent the spread of foodborne diseases. This significantly limits the scale of projects like this and makes it hard for new composting technologies like Bokashi to break through. The composting team is looking for ways to change the laws and build businesses that can work now. But there could also be challenges in selling to farmers, said intern Charikova. The one that we spoke to, uh, Franz, a very charismatic uh, biodynamic farmer, he said that... uh, there is not much knowledge about compost in general and the need of compost. And a lot of um, farmers who actually have uh, livestock, they think they are pretty fine just with the menu. So I think definitely it will take a work in order to work with the farmers about the knowledge. And perhaps it's much difficult to convince the older ones who are dealing for decades um, with the practices. That said, Aarhus, Denmark, and the world at large have some big challenges and sustainability goals ahead when it comes to food production and climate change. If the pilot project is a success, composting could be part of the solution. If we just put it in half of the farmland in Denmark, we will exceed the CO2 goals that has been set by the government by far. In order to change this climate change way, which I'm sure that we will, Uh, We need to be more aware in general. And it's not enough to just sort your food waste and compost. You need to do a lot of small actions, and it's like a uh, mindset change. That was Carrie's report on composting. So, Carrie, after listening to this story, I think it's really a good way or a good idea to deal with the food waste. But I've got a question. Is this method practical or easy to replicate to other places? What is its biggest limitation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the the reasons they're doing this as a pilot project is that the Bokashi method has mostly been used by individuals up until this point. And so it's been individual families having their own bucket um, sort of composting in this sort of unique method. Um, And so one of the big limitations is how they'll actually be able to scale. You know, will the Bokashi work the same um, in terms of killing the diseases and working the same way as the other composting methods when it's at a larger scale? Um, But that is really important because the municipality in Aarhus, as well as any other cities who are interested in sustainability, want to know how they can scale this larger um, and bring it to more neighborhoods besides just uh, Aarhus or or just one one small area. So um, I, I think that's definitely a limitation, but also a big opportunity for the team moving forward. Now we're going to take a sip of the beer of the future. For more, we go to our reporter, Xiu Chen. Danes love beer. According to a report from reference.com, there are more than 32,000 kinds of different beer in the world. Besides, in each year, there will be new kinds of beer come to the market. Then here comes the question, 
How do the brewery decide what kind of new beer should be invented? For the nuanced differences among various new invented products, how do they pick up the right one? Researchers from Aarhus University are trying to do something different as a new solution. In partnership with Kalsberg, the Danish brewery giants, they launched a project which aims to apply artificial intelligence to taste test the brewery's new beer. Professor Jon Klimps, the director of Aarhus University's interdisciplinary nanoscience center, told Future Forward Aarhus that. The idea in this project is to mimic the artificial receptors that could respond to the beverage. So、uh, the way it works is that、uh, we are imagining that our mouth and our nose contains a lot of receptors for taste and smell, and all these receptors in our mouth and nose are made out of small molecules that kind of that can bind、uh, other molecules in the food. And、uh, in fact, we only have a subset of、uh, receptors. We might only have maybe two, three, four hundred of these receptors that are all receiving signals to the brain of what is in the food. And、um, the idea in this project is that we would like to mimic,、uh, make artificial small receptors that can actually respond to the food. Sounds interesting, right? But wait, how does the new technology make it possible? Professor Yong Klimps told us. Is by hijacking the DNA capability of information. The way that we can read out our smell of our food is actually being done by DNA sequencing. So the idea is that we are artificially using DNA as a type of taster or smell of food. And、uh, the reason why this is possible now is that today we can sequence DNA extremely rapidly. So we can sequence billions of DNAs in. A few minutes uh, using uh, new sequencing technologies. So you could say that we are kind of hijacking the DNA、uh, capability of information, and then use that information to report back to us what there are in, in food. Some may be wondering, if they want to taste test certain kind of food or beverage, how should the new method proceed? Professor Yuan Klimps gives us a clear explanation. The way it works will be that you have a mixture of reporters or, or your your sensors, which are just a liquid. You cannot see anything in it. It's just a clear liquid,、uh, and that liquid you mix with your food, and then you take the the mixture and run them through a small filter, and this、uh, filter will collect everything that is bound to the food substances. So it will hold back the sensors that are being bound to the food. And the remaining things will be washed out in this、uh, collection, and then you take afterward the sensors, and these are made from DNA. So you kind of just put them directly into the sequencing device, and then you you sequence them afterward. We also interviewed some beer lovers from all over Aarhus about this new technology. Most of them told us they would like to try the new beer with application of artificial intelligence, and only one student. From Via University College, said he felt weird about that. It sounds weird. Weird? Why? I guess you could do that, but、uh, you would have to formulate the idea like in a in a different way. Now, if it's like that, Carlsberg is super advanced in technology. He has such a nice technician that create an incredible artificial intelligence that can simulate. 
part of our human body, but I feel like that it's more like statistically speaking. So maybe the artificial intelligence will just say, okay, we know that statistically speaking, these days it's really likable to be appreciated by our customers. So I guess it works like that. And yeah, it would make sense. Now you can understand what he really means. But what's more, Professor Yuan claims told us the bigger meaning of applying artificial intelligence into food industry is to enable the food maker to have a better quality control on its productions. Thus, the food becomes better and safer for us consumers. So we envision that this will be uh, something that can be used in the food industry to make sure that they are free from contaminations, so it improves the safety of the food. It also can be used to uh, track authenticity of, of foods, whether that's authentic to the company, whether it's been a, a copy made by another company, uh, because that would show up quite easily. So it can also be used as a quality control for the factory. When they make food, they can check whether the food is, seems to be okay, uh, look normal, before they send it out to the users. All right, that was Xiu Chen taking us into the future of beer. All right, so this project will take place with Carlsberg, which is one of the biggest beer companies in the world. But we're also seeing a small batch beer trend. Will this type of technology take over the craft beer industry as well? I think some some craft beer makers, maybe they can or they'd like to like uh, apply this technology to its business. But I guess that that, that is not the case with uh, like small-scale uh, craft beer makers because um, as we are talking more, more and more about artificial intelligence in different industries, no doubt the new technology will improve the standard, the general standard of the quality of the products. But uh, for like some more uh, creative related, creative oriented industry, like the craft beer business, many, many people think it's like the opposite side of the manufactured goods, manufactured beer. It involves with your human humans' uh, inspirations, humans' creative ideas. So maybe, I guess, some craft beer maker, they will use this technology to make their beer maybe uh, taste better or make their production proceeds smarter. But I think a lot of small-scale craft beer will still like stick to the proceeds you used to use to make their very personal, very characteristic beer. Right, so uh, robots may be taking some of their jobs, but they won't be drinking our beer just yet. You talked a little bit in this story about um, how this technology um, can be used elsewhere. So, you know, is this going to come to other food industries uh, anytime in the, in the near future? Yeah, of course, just like the Professor Jung Klims mentioned in the report, that's a bigger picture of this te- new technology is to to apply this new technology technology to other food industry, into food, into beverage, into everything we e- we eat because it make the food safer because you can easily taste even by us users we can use this uh, tiny sample to test how the food is uh, produced. Is there any kind of contamination? Is the is this food from the authentic brand or authentic factor? It's very easy for common users to test. So thus will make we will enable us 
to to find the good is good or not, uh, safe or not, more easily. Before we end today's show, we'll hear from one of our experts about what they want to learn. Today, Lars from Invaluable shares what he wants to learn next. We, there's a lot where where we need to optimize over the coming years, not least genetics. How do we uh, breed the the best strains where we can unfold their potential in this production environment? Um, we need to know about uh, how. They can get ill from diseases, although people or humans do not get ill from them. They can get ill from this. We need to to understand how we can uh, reduce the risk of that and and uh, remedy uh, if they get ill. Um, and we need we need to focus on 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 building feed for them so that uh, they are become even more efficient. We need a lot of knowledge on nutrition, on reproduction of these uh, different species of insects that we use, on on their physiological interaction with their environment, particularly from a temperature perspective, which is the motor of their metabolism, uh, and then also, uh, for, as I mentioned, uh, from a genetic perspective. And on top of this, we need to also, at least in a in in a Western perspective, to to automize it, because if we are going to produce tens of thousands of tons per factory, it needs to be automized. Because you cannot uh, visually inspect or f- or put feed into fifty uh, to a hundred thousand uh, trays on a daily basis, so there's there's so much we can uh, that we still need to learn. We've just started this journey, which is also what makes it uh, super exciting. Okay, that's our show. Today's episode was co-hosted by me, Carrie Hustad, and me, Xi Yuchen. Our technical editors today are Rosia Vadarabano and Lisa Obauer, and our music editor is Laura Galante. Our jingle was mixed by Xiao Liang, with music by Simon Mathewson. This is the Future Forward Aarhus podcast, where we're exploring tomorrow today on the radio. Catch us live Wednesdays at 6 p.m. on Student Aarhus Radio. radio.